Hey, what's up, guys? This is Pastor Austin from Good Shepherd Church, and this is our podcast. So happy you're tuning in this week to stay caught up on what the Lord's doing in us and through us. I hope this content encourages you. I hope it challenges you, builds up your love for Jesus. Hope you enjoy the message. We love you. So pretend you're in the Atlantic Ocean, okay? And there are these two fish, right? They go out. They go out into the coral hood. Let's call it that, the coral hood. They're going for a stroll. And they pass this much older, much wiser looking fish going the opposite direction. And that old fish, he nods and he says, morning boys, how's the water? The two young fish, they nod back and they just kind of keep going. And then suddenly, one of them turns to the other fish and says, what the heck is water? (laughs) And the older fish, hearing, hearing them, He turns back over and he says, this is water. And he gestures to everything, everything around them. So we've been in a series, Summer in the Psalms, okay? And we have this secret name. We have this secret name for this series on staff. And I cannot wait to reveal it to you guys. It's Summer in the Psalms, huh? Uh, and if you look really closely, you can actually see a P. Huh? Yeah. Yeah. That's right. So now you're asking yourself, how long has that been there? Just since this morning. I asked, I asked Steph to do it this morning. That's it. That's all. I just couldn't wait. You know, I, it's such a great opportunity. The summer in the Psalms. Thank you guys for bearing with me. I was so excited to do that. <laughs> uh, in this series... Summer in the Psalms, we've been looking at Psalms all summer and using them, as Caden said, in the very first week as a way to navigate all the emotions that we have in this human experience. And then from there, Austin has tackled different emotions like awe in Psalm 19, trust in Psalm 23, repentance in Psalm 51. Katie showed us how to take our fear and turn it into faith with Psalm 56. And then Caden came back to remind us of our royal identity in Psalm 101. And then Austin tackled the importance of sharing our faith to the next generation in Psalm 78. And then Psalm 71 was used to talk about Selah and slowing down in our busy lives. And then we looked at the intimate creation of who we are and of a God who loves us in Psalm 139. And finally, in the last two weeks that we just had, Austin uh, tackled grief and lament in Psalms 31 and in Psalm 22. And if any of those sound, you know, intriguing to you, please go back and and watch them or listen to them um, as a podcast. But I summarized this whole series because it will hopefully give you guys a very small snapshot of how the Psalter or the book of Psalms has been used historically by the church for centuries. You see, the book of Psalms is is very instructional, actually, and it gives us ways to process every emotion and to enhance our prayer life with language and to go to God in every season of our lives. But to what end? Why is it that we've been given these 150 Psalms? Is it just to give us those rhythms of obedience? Is it just to give us a safe place to process emotions? Or is there more? You see, scholarship on the Psalms, as I'm sure you can imagine, is very vast, right? And it's really cool. They all, 
they all kind of come together. When they look at the order of what is being done of Psalms 1 to Psalm 150, they agree that the Psalms are used to first cultivate a life of obedience to the Almighty God, but so that we might have a life of worship. And that is why the book of Psalms ends with a collection of five Psalms. And they're called the Hallel Psalms or Hallelujah Psalms, because that's where we get the word from. And these last five Psalms, they all start and end with praise the Lord. Hallelujah. And I love the Hebrew name for the Psalter, which is Book of Praises, which is an apt name once we understand that it's all just building towards a life of worship to God. So Psalm 150, it ends the book of Psalms, but any English major worth their salt takes the time to look at the beginning, right? To see how it informs the end. So I'm gonna quickly remind you of some things about Psalm 1. Psalm 1 gave us two ways to go throughout our life. We could either follow the way of the righteous or we could go the way of the wicked. And then Psalm 1 was also very personal. Lots of personal pronouns in Psalm 1 reminding you that you could plant yourself by streams of water or you could be destined for judgment, being wicked. And then Psalm 1 is also six verses long, which is fun to notice. So we're going to look at Psalm 150 now. It'll be up on the screen. And it's the very planned, the very intentionally placed ending to the book of praises. Psalm 150 reads, Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with trumpet sound. Praise him with lute and harp. Praise him with tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and pipe. Praise him with sounding cymbals. Praise him with loud clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. It's a beautiful ending to an incredible book in the Bible. But a couple of noticings for you. Psalm 150, it's also six verses, which for me as an English major, it's like, yes, yeah, I love that. Six verses at the beginning, six verses at the end. And Psalm 50 is also very clearly not about us anymore, right? Psalm 150 is making sure that we know that he is worthy of all our praise. Psalm 150 is also not long. It minces no words. It's not breathy. It's quick. It's snappy. It's to the point. What I think it assumes in its brevity is that the Psalter has done its work on you. That you have moved from just a strict obedience to the Torah or the law of God into a life that praises him all the live long day. And as we as we close a series like this, there might be a crisis for some as we start to think about Passover in the Psalms. You start to look at your life, take stock. I think it's healthy when we come to the end of something to take stock of what we're doing and looking at your own life. Is it a life of worship? Is it like Romans 12, 1, where it says, we present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. If you laid back into your chair and you thought about your life, does it, does it worship God? Does it look like you give praise, do his name in your life? You see, for me, when I thought of my life, I asked myself the question, surely I can't worship him 
all the time, right? Well, <laughs> let me present to you a world-class secular thinker, and he's not at all a theologian, I'm not joking, by the name of David Foster Wallace. In an address to college students in 2005, David Foster Wallace had this to say about worship. Yes, worship. It's a long quote, but hang with me. I promise you, it's very good. He starts with, you get to consciously decide what has meaning and what doesn't. You get to decide what to worship. Because here's something else that's weird but true. In the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. And if you worship power, you'll end up feeling weak and afraid and you will never, or sorry, and you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. If you worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful, it's that they're unconscious. They are default settings. They're the kind of worship that you just gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that is what you're doing. Whew. Right? It's beautiful and terrifying to me that someone who doesn't even believe in Jesus maybe has a better grasp on the importance of worship than most Christians. And I love that quote. I love what it does to my heart. I love what it does to remind me of the importance of worship. But I also love what Eugene Peterson says about worship in his book, Contemplative Pastor, which is this. The reality is God, worship or flee. Simple and to the point. With our default settings, it got me thinking of places of worship. So I took the liberty of collecting some images of different places of worship in the US, places in America where I believe people convene to worship something. So this first picture, look at us, there it is, hey. Hey, that's us, nice. Next one, choose fitness. Some people gather there to worship something. The next one, Mile High Stadium, a regular place of worship on Sundays. The next one, this is the inside of our state capitol building. Another place where I think some worship happens at times. And then the last one, this is Wall Street. Another place where I think worship often happens. Now, I love the phrase, what you behold is what you become. Because to behold something is to look at something reverently. To hold it in high regard in your own eye. To look at it with esteem. I think beholding is the beginning of worship. And what we worship really matters. Just ask the Psalms. And I think there's a simple loop that we can keep in mind to help us keep ourselves in check. And it'll be on the screen. It's, it's what you worship, it changes what you think. And what you think changes what you want. And what you want 
changes what you do, and what you do changes what you worship. That loop is, is a really helpful reminder for me. And it helps me evaluate, am I worshiping the right things in my life? And I would encourage you to keep it in the back of your mind. But what happens when we find ourselves not worshiping the right things? How can we get back on track? Well, it's hard to get back on track if you don't actually know what got you off track, right? So I think we have to look at some of the problems that we face in trying to create a life of worship. Because we can't create a remedy if we don't know all the components of a disease, right? And I was going to say, I was going to say vaccine there, but I just, is it too soon? Is it too soon to use that word, right? I, so we'll just stick with remedy. We'll kind of sidestep the vaccine thing. But today I want to use Psalm 150 as a way to move us toward a life of worship. Let's look at the problems that we face in creating a life of worship and then how God can use beauty to combat our problems to create those lives of worship. You guys ready? All right. So what keeps us from a life of worship? Now I'm going to do, I'm just going to look at three things here, but I think they kind of help, they look at the lion's share of what keeps us from a life of worship. And the first one is this fancy word, habituation. So what the heck is habituation? Well, it's defined as a psychological term for the diminishing of a physiological or emotional response to a repeated stimulus. So, in layman's terms, habituation is not about habits, but instead about doing something so frequently that you actually become desensitized to it. You become callous. It no longer moves your heart. And there's so many places that I think habituation happens, but I want to keep it in the context of worship. So this is why we don't sing the same exact four songs every Sunday. Because if we just sang the same exact four songs every Sunday... All hail King Jesus. I would probably love that, but it would start to lose some of its luster. Worship cannot become rote. It cannot become this thing that we just check a box on a Sunday. Yep, I sang those four songs. I'm ready to go. Worship can't even just happen on a Sunday. That's what I'm getting at. We have to make a conscious decision and choice to worship, especially when we don't feel like it because that is when you fight habituation. Because habituation takes the spice out of life. It keeps us from engaging with our whole selves. It keeps our hands down, it keeps our hearts closed and our minds busy with the mundane problems of this world. So that's problem number one, habituation. Problem number two is that we have other idols on the thrones of our hearts. This is a big one. It's all over scripture, right? The Bible talks constantly about being careful about having idols on your heart. You see, every one of those pictures I showed besides our sanctuary, right, could represent an idol that someone would have in their life, whether it be fitness or money or sports, right? There's something in those pictures about an idol that could be on your heart. And if we have idols in our lives, when it comes to worshiping God, you're going to leave something at the table. You won't give him your time because your calendar is already spoken for. You just can't seem to squeeze him in. Or you won't give him your affection because you've already given your affections to so many other things. And we are human. 
we do have a limit to how much love that we can give. Idols will ruin your life with God. They will drown your life in a hamster wheel of never having enough, never getting enough, and never being enough until one day that you just implode. We have to keep watch over our hearts, as it says in Proverbs 4.23, because that is where life starts. We have to be reminded to praise God in his sanctuary, praise him in his mighty heavens, praise him for his mighty deeds, and praise him according to his excellent greatness. So that's our first two problems. Our third problem is that we're stuck at the fence. Back in June, I went to a weekend getaway for my brother-in-law's bachelor party. And we went up to Saratoga, Wyoming. And it was me, my father-in-law, Bob, and my brother-in-law, Nate. And they were in the front seat, and I was sitting in the back just chilling. And they started talking about something about business, which I just, I'll, be, I'll admit, it's not my favorite topic in the world, okay? And so I'm starting to float. I'm starting to just look out the window, looking for things to enjoy and pass the time. And I'm starting to notice all the land that we're going by the beautiful land that we're going by, right? All those wonderful crops of land, thousands of acres. And I was noticing that they all have fences. Every single one of them has fences. And then I was also noticing that the horses like to hang out right by the fence. I found that so weird because even a couple days later, I was riding with the Dykemans up to Montana with our long drive and we were seeing the same exact thing. Thousands of acres, huge plots of land, and these horses. Instead of gallivanting, going through thousands of acres of land, what, where were they? Right up to the fence. Listfully, longingly, looking at this other plot of land just over the fence. Ruining their own day. And I think we can get like these horses. I think we can get stuck on the fences of our lives. We thought our life was going to look a certain way by now. We thought we would own a 1,000 acre ranch by now. But we all know the lie. If you had the ranch, there would still just be something else for you to look over at that proverbial fence and see something else. Now I know that everyone knows here that the grass isn't actually greener on the other side. But I do have to ask the question, why don't we always worship like it then? Why don't we always worship with our arms high and our hearts abandoned in awe of the one who gave it all? Why don't we praise him with trumpet sound and praise him with lute and harp? Why don't we praise him with tambourine and dance? And praise him with strings and pipe. Why don't we just praise him with sounding cymbals and praise him with loud clashing cymbals? I'll tell you why. <laughs> because this life can get ugly. You see, sin has soaked the earth. And the Bible tells us that the earth groans, waiting for Jesus to come back and make it right. You see, sometimes it feels like we are trapped in the already, not yet, longing for Jesus to make his return because life is brutal. And I can remember, I can remember the moment when worship became more than just Sundays to me. And I can remember something just clicking in my spirit. 
You see, in high school, I loved Jesus. I did. I, but I wasn't a worshiper. I would say I was like a Christian partier. <laughs> I went to, to youth, youth group to be in the mosh pit. I wanted to be like bouncing around like, Jesus. But then when like those feely songs came on, I kind of settled for like, this is fine, whatever. But towards the end of high school, something happened. I was a pretty high achieving student in school. I had like a 4.2 GPA. I played multiple sports, whatever, it didn't matter. We had this TVHS night and family and friends would be invited. And at the end of your high school career, they would celebrate some of the accolades. And they would announce for the first time the scholarships that you got. And I was greatly looking forward to this night because I knew that I was a finalist for four scholarships. And there was a couple other there that I thought I was in the running for. And what ended up happening is that I didn't get a single one. I actually last lost every single scholarship to the same girl who had a full ride already on a track scholarship to the school of her dreams. And it was crushing. It was so hard to work so hard to do all the things and feel like you got nothing. And I was so mad at God that summer. I was like, God, I am supposed to be a North Carolina Tar Heel. But instead, I'm a wolf at Front Range Community College. <laughs> no offense. No offense to Front Range. But I was so mad at God that summer that I actually waited until a week before college even started to even register for classes because I was just defeated. I was mad. <laughs> I was pissed at God. Going into college, the world got significantly uglier to me in a very small amount of time. I got to experience firsthand some really, really hard difficulties in this already not yet tension that we live in. And you know those feely songs, the ones that talk about God's goodness and promise that he's going to make a return and make things right? Those became the songs that spoke to my heart. Those became the songs that changed worship for me. It was no longer about me getting filled up in worship. It was about me pouring everything out to him, everything that I have to a God who has given me so, so much. But it took, it took time. It took me acknowledging that I was hanging out on the fence of my life. You see, I think we get stuck on these fences and church, I say this a lot, but faith is caught more often than it's taught, right? And we talk about this usually with parenting, but I also think that worship is caught too. It's why as a next-gen team, we value making sure that we represent and we worship the way that we want to see kids to worship. But also parents, that's our call as well, right? They have our DNA. We, it has to start with us as parents, I know I'm not a perfect parent by any means, but I will be homeless before I raise a kid that does not see me worship the almighty God, the author and the perfecter of my faith, the one who rescued me. 
the one who put a cloak around me coming home as the prodigal son, the loving father. And it can all start by recognizing that we are stuck at the fences of our lives. We have to be honest enough with ourselves in front of the Lord to say, okay, God, I'm disgruntled with you. I'm not happy that I didn't get any scholarships and that I don't get to go be a Tar Heel like I thought I was going to get to be. But if you've learned nothing else from this series, I hope you hear this. Please hear that God can handle your emotions and not just handle them. He wants to meet you in them. He wants to walk with you through them and provide a way out. I do believe that when we find ourselves having one of these three problems, that God has a healthy way for us to walk out of these things. But it takes intentionality on our part. It takes a little bit of effort. It's not just a a prayer of like, hey God, I goofed, that's my bad, fix my problems, you're the best, amen. That doesn't work. That's not how it works. It takes intentionality to remove an idol off your heart. It takes intentionality to snap out of habituation. And it takes recognizing that you have been sitting on the fence for far too long and that there is all this beauty that God has for you if you'll just turn around. So I think in life, if we want to cultivate a life of worship, that we need beauty. So this is the remedy. Simply put, I believe the remedy to a life lacking worship is beauty. I've just got two things I wanna say about beauty and then we'll wrap it up. The first one being that we need to recognize beauty. We need, ladies and gentlemen, beautiful things. We need beautiful art. We need wonderful statues. We need incredible places to go and see. We need those special moments in sports that just remind you, oh yeah, this is beautiful. Life is beautiful. We need great literature. Gotta read things that make us feel beautiful or draw us into beautiful settings. We need regular bumpins with beauty to kill habituation. You see, when we have grown cold to the beauty that is all around us, especially in a place like Colorado, then we need a wake-up call. We need regular bumpins with beauty. I have Sarah, who I believe to be the most beautiful woman in the world. And every time I look at her, I am reminded of the incredible design that God has done with her. But Sarah, but Sarah can't be the only beautiful thing in my life. It's not a responsibility that she can hold as a human. We serve a lavish God, a guy who went cuckoo bananas on beautiful for just beautiful's sake. Like what even is the function of a sunrise or a sunset, honestly? Seriously, he could have just been like, it's morning, it's night. I mean, for real. But instead, there's this regular scheduled time that happens every day of beauty in the morning where I can look at it and say, thank you, God. And then there's a time at night, every single night, where there is a sunset all the way around the world where we can go, praise you. Let every breath, let everything that has breath, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. We need bumpins. We have to recognize the beauty that is in our lives. I literally schedule beauty into my calendar, if you want to call it that. 
I have a rhythm with Sarah where on Tuesdays and Thursday mornings, I can roll out of the house at 5 a.m. And on Tuesday, I'm not expected back until 7 a.m., which, you know, those of you that have kids, you're like, oh, wow, two hours by yourself. That's pretty amazing. Gets even better. Thursdays, I don't even have to come home. I just go to work. It's great. So I got like a four-hour block from five to nine where I can just do some things where I can recognize some beauty. I can take intentional time to have some coffee because coffee is beautiful <laughs> and it is amazing and God made it that way. I can also read God's word uninhibited, not being distracted. I can be reminded of how good he is to me, of the promises that he has for me. I can read some great literature. I can, I can hit a bucket of balls and look at God's handiwork and just wonder about the mysteriousness of fog. And then I can crush a seven iron to eight feet. And it's just amazing. <laughs> we have to get good at recognizing beauty. So that's number one. Number two, we need to attribute beauty. Now, if you're good at recognizing all this beauty, that's great. But it will all be worthless if you attribute it to man. If it does not attribute to God, then it is not worth noticing the beauty. In James 1.17, it says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. You see, attributing the beauty around us to God draws us just so naturally into worship. If you thank God for making something beautiful, then you're going to thank him probably for something else. And it's just going to start happening. You're going to just start living a life of worship. Suddenly that pumpkin cream cold brew from Starbucks of all places is drawing me into a moment of gratitude with the Lord. Because what reason does it have to be so good? Other than the fact that I serve a God who loves me, cares about me, and gives us beautiful things for our enjoyment. And we should praise him for it all day long. But we cannot attribute beauty to a God that we are stuck on the fence with. That we are actively shaking our fist at because our life is not where we thought it should be by now. We have to make sure that God is sitting on the throne of our hearts. Because if we go to attribute beauty and we give that to something else, something else in the world, rather than to the man or to the God who deserves it all. We have got to recognize and attribute beauty. And with beauty, we begin to build a life of worship. And we begin to be examples of lives of worship to the people around us. Now, Sarah and I have made, I think, a couple of mistakes already with Harvey. That's okay. But there's one thing that I'm really proud of that we did. We brought Harvey to his first church service after six days of being alive. And he sat and he worshiped with his mom and dad for the very first time in his life at six days old. And Harvey could not worship on his own, right? But he could borrow on the worship of other people, whether it was Caden or Maddie or Mac or Katie or Chelsea or Chris or Lorenzo or anyone who has held him and worshiped with him, part of this body. You see, Harvey is being formed into being a worshiper. And it has already gotten to the point where when Harvey wakes up, he asks for two things. He asks for milk 
naturally. But then he asks for music. And this is his own little sign for music. And after milk, we turn on worship music and we dance and we sing and we twist and we stomp our foot. We clap our hands and we sing because worship doesn't just happen on a Sunday for 26 and a half minutes. It happens all the time. It's everything that has breath. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord. So today I'm not some just wise old fish, clearly telling you what water is. No, the point of the fish story at the very beginning was to point out that the most obvious and important realities in life in our life are the ones that are sometimes the hardest to see and sometimes the hardest to talk about. You see, today I'm telling you that I was that young fish asking God, what the heck is worship? And over time, really for years now, the Lord has been pushing me towards a life that endeavors to be more closely worshiping him with everything that I am, pushing me towards a life that says to the world, this is worship. Will you guys join me as I pray for this morning and stand? Dear Heavenly Father, would you be with us this week? Would you maybe reveal to us where we worship, how we worship? Would you reveal to us, Lord, maybe the things that are on our heart that shouldn't be there? Father, would you show us, would you begin to move us towards a life of worship? Would we be reminded this week that everything that draws breath, will it praise the Lord, praise the Lord? And it's in your mighty name we say, amen. Thank you.